0: Because we're told that believing in God, we're told as, I hate to excuse my French here, for idiots. That is not for reasonable people. That in fact, it's religion that suppresses all of scientific discovery. And because the religious were stuck in their ar- archaic ways and haven't heard about Galileo and all that stuff. So the two options we're given is, do you want to be smart or stupid? There you go. Be smart and be an atheist. At least that's what we're told. Well, today we're diving deep into the topic of science and faith. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the answer Roman Show. I'm so happy that you've tuned in. We have started season 15 last week, and gosh, we are just not holding back. I mean, last episode had a title, which I think raised some eyebrows, so you got to go check it out, because I said something about that you you don't need God to be successful. What? What? What did he say? Well... I'll let you figure out what exactly I meant by that. Go watch the episode. It truly is one of the most important episodes I've recorded. Hey, another fun fact. We are having another Question It event. This time in Dallas. Last month, we did it in Houston. This time, we're doing it in Dallas at my home church, Viva Church. If you're in the DFW area, I want to personally invite you. i love to say to you, see, go to ccgeneration.com slash question it event ccgeneration.com slash question event it's november 5th bring a question bring a friend it's completely free this is the opportunity if you have a friend who might be kind of uh, on the fence about christian faith or totally antagonistic to it bring them to this event so that way they can ask their questions and we can explore the answers together well folks there has been a lie i almost feel like a news anchor Ladies and gentlemen, breaking lie that has permeated so much of culture and has affected many believers as well. Although a myth, it's often repeated so much that it's believed to be true. From the news here first, you heard it here first, to colleges, to social media, there isn't a space that hasn't been affected by this. So far, this is sounding pretty dramatic, like every time you hear the news. I know. Well, what is this myth? This myth is what Esqueleto believed in. If you know Nacho Libre, Esqueleto. I'm concerned about your salvation and stuff. Why have you not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? It's like, oh, well, tonight we're fighting the demons of the devil or whatever he's he's fighting. I I don't like how you're always judging me. I believe in science. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about the war of science versus, you can fill in the blank, faith. You see, this war, and I say war even though it's a myth, It's supposedly between people who have quote-unquote blind faith in some type of sky daddy up there that they can't see in some ancient book called the Bible and the smart atheists, the non-believers who believe in facts, evidence in the real world. And this myth has caused so many people to not take their faith seriously anymore. I've I've spoken to many youth that unfortunately just— said you know what i like science but i don't know even can i believe in god what about the big bang evolutionary theory what about all this stuff because we're told that believing in god we're told is i hate to excuse my french here for idiots that is not for reasonable people that in fact it's religion that suppresses all of scientific discovery and and because the religious were stuck in their ar- archaic ways and having heard about galileo and all that stuff so the two options were given is do you want to be smart or stupid. There you go. Be smart and be an atheist. At least that's what we're told. Well, today we're diving deep into the topic of science and faith. I know not everyone's really interested in like nerdy conversations about science, but I want you to emphasize why this is for you because we're not actually going to go into detail about science. So don't worry if you hate it, your chemistry class, your physics class, or your biology class, you're gonna love this episode because we're gonna talk about some of the general information that it's important for everyone to know. Because no one wants to believe in fairy tales, and definitely no one wants to be uh, seen as stupid or as dumb that you're believing some type of, um, you know, sky daddy or or this kind of fairy that, that lives on lives who knows where actually because you can't see him and you're anti science supposedly. Well, like I said, it's a myth. But let's answer the question. Is the Christian faith actually anti-science? And in answering this question, we'll show how the definition of of faith that a lot of times people use is wrong. And sorry, let me get back into my news anchor. So let's answer the question. Is the Christian faith anti-science? In answering this question, we will show how the definition of faith in the world that the world uses is actually incorrect. You see, Christianity has always been a thinking faith. We're going to tell the true story of Galileo in the church, how it was actually Christians who led the scientific revolution, and lastly, and ironically, how atheism is actually into science. We're back after the break. How about that? Maybe I should be a news anchor. Oh, no, I think I did a pretty bad job. Anyways, it's a jam-packed episode. Let's get into it. First of all, our definition of faith is usually wrong when talked about um, in the conversation of this myth. What is faith to begin with? Is faith really blind? Because a lot of the myth of science versus faith depends on the false definition of faith. Because having faith, I know we've said that word like 10 times now, but that's okay because it's part of the episode. Having faith has been compared to wishful thinking, to being naive, to being gullible. Like, oh man, here here goes the guy who, who rejects reality apparently. But this is never the definition of faith I think any serious believer holds, because Hebrews 11 says, now, faith is the what? The assurance, the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, some have taken the very last part of that that says the things not seen as to say, well, there it is, blind faith. But wait a second. Faith is putting your trust in something, and we're going to define it in, in, in a couple seconds here, but... All the stories of great men and women of the Bible who had faith, they didn't have faith in the unknown necessarily. They had faith in God. So there's definitely an unknown kind of realm about faith, but but it's not blind because it's set on God. I mean, faith more properly defined is trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. I'm going to say it again. Faith is more properly defined as trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. So if this is the case, we all use faith because faith is belief in action. You, I can say that I believe this chair will hold me until I sit down. That's when it's actually faith faith is putting your weight like literally me right now or your trust you're leaning on something that is faith so when you put your faith in Christ as an example it means that you're putting your trust in him because you have good reasons to believe him you have good reasons to believe that he what he said is true that who he is is the truth so this idea that putting your trust in Jesus and following him is some type of wishful thinking that's just not accurate or it's blind faith it's just not true in fact from the very, from the get-go, from the very beginning, the Christian faith has been a thinking faith. Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And actually, we won't read the, the entire thing. I just want to kind of give, give a summary here. Paul gives names after names after names of eyewitnesses that saw the risen Jesus at the end, including himself. He's not saying, guys, Jesus rose. How do you know? Oh, bro, blind faith, brother. <laughs> blind faith, brother. You just believe me. No, he said, uh, well, here are the eyewitnesses. In fact, he appeared to over 500, which some of them are still alive. So if you'd like to go ask him, go ask them. Paul's message wasn't a just believe me because I said so type of message. In fact, let's read Acts 17. He says this. When they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, listen here. Paul went into the synagogue and on the three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. This is what Paul declared. Some of the Jews were persuaded. While others were not, but many joined Paul and Silas, it says, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few leading women. Did you hear that? He reasoned with them. He explained it and then proving? And some of the Jews were persuaded? Uh Uh-oh, this sounds like a lot of of non-believer terminology, apparently. Apparently, and I say apparently because... This is what some people have come to believe, which is totally anti the truth here. Take the next chapter in chapter 18. It says, verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was, very, uh, he was a learned man. Thus, he was an atheist. Oh, wait, wait. I'm sorry. That's not what it says. Let me see what it says. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Thus, he became a deconstru- deconstructionist. Wait, I'm sorry. I keep reading this wrong for some reason. Um, it says he had a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. And though he knew only the baptisms of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their th- to their home and explained to him the ways of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, in, in, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, there was great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate. Debate? Christians can debate? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to be angry and like, um, like ever. oh man, we're just debating everybody because we're argumentative. No, that, that's, that's not what it means here. But it's interesting that he says he proved from the scriptures. Proving doesn't sound like blind faith. Now, for, for the sake of not being misunderstood here, I'm not saying that following Jesus is, an, is a decision only based on reason alone. No, God is ultimately trying to get to your heart. But for many people, it means going through the head first. And that might be someone like you. You might be someone who's a very thinking person. Christianity is a thinking faith. But someone might say, okay, I get it, Andrew. It's a thinking phase as as in like theologically wise, right? Because they prove from the scriptures. But what about the science stuff? Because then didn't the naturalists and the atheists come along and say, haha, your Bible's wrong because here is, we don't need God for nature anymore um, to justify nature. Well, here's where we're going to take a, a road back into history to talk about the history of science. So if you read your average textbooks on, on science, it might take you back to the Greeks specifically some influential thinkers, which we're going to talk about in a second, they helped de-deify, meaning get rid of all the mythologies that were connected to nature so that it could be studied better. And thus, the assumption is laid that in order to do proper science, one must be a naturalist or an atheist. So the idea goes, of course, that since the Greeks, it was the atheists and the naturalists who took scientific inquiry seriously, but it was a hard-headed religious figures who were just stuck in time and either rejected new scientific ideas or they were just stuck worshiping the god of thunder or something. But this is totally an incomplete picture because the foundations of science were laid centuries before the Greeks even. Dr. John Lennox, emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, says this, quote, at the heart of all science lies the conviction that the universe is orderly. Without this deep convictions science would be impossible. So we are entitled to ask, where does the conviction come from? End quote. So that's an honest question. If the universe was chaotic, it would be impossible to study because there's no patterns to study. Everything is just, well, chaotic. It's Melvin Calvin, a Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, that tries to answer John's, uh, Dr. Lennox's question. And he says this, Quote, As I try to discern the origin of that conviction that the universe is orderly, I seem to find it in the basic notion that was discovered two thousand or three thousand years ago, and enunciated first in the Western world by the ancient Hebrews, namely that the universe is governed by a single God and is not the product of the whims of many gods, each governing his own province according to his own laws. This monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation of modern science. Again, this is coming from a Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry. I think a smart dude, if we just kind of not an idiot, for sure. This is a fascinating perspective, one that I didn't have before reading this book. By the way, the the book that I'm quoting from um, is actually called Cosmic Chemistry by Dr. John Lennox, and he uses a lot of these quotes to build this case that I'm building today. I think it's going to be helpful that we share a little bit more of the history of science to understand this fascinating perspective and to appreciate the role that not only Christians specifically, but more generally theists, so men who believed in a higher being, as opposed to atheists or naturalists, had when it comes to the science, the rise of science. You see, during the Greek era, much of nature was deified, as we said before, through the stories of Homer and Hesiod, the poet, that's around 700 BC. However, in the city of Miletus, men like Thales and, and his student Anaximander and others weren't having, they were just, they were calling the the crap, if you will. They're calling the smoke about these mythological explanations. They're like, nah, I, I don't believe that thunder is really the voice of a god. There has to be some natural explanation. Let's find out. And it was actually these philosophers who, by looking for natural explanations, came up with some pretty amazing successes for their time. I, for example, Thales is accredited with determining the length of the year to be 365 days. Tell me how he did that. Dude, I can barely keep up with what day it is, and this man in who knows what BC in ancient pre-Socratic Greece knew how long the year is. I've just never felt more dumb in my life. And, by the way, he he also accurately predicted a solar eclipse in 585 BC. Again, never felt dumber. Well, these Milesian philosophers were laying down the foundations for a naturalistic worldview, one that said there's zero gods whatsoever, like zero spiritual world, nothing. It is only nature. However, they weren't the only ones calling out the nonsense of mythologies, there was another pre-Socratic Greek philosopher by the name of Z- of Xenophanes. Now, Xenophanes, he was from a city called Colophon, which is modern-day Turkey. He's well-known for his attempts to understand the fossils of sea creatures found in Malta. Again, just geeky information I just found interesting, even though I had no idea. Uh, but I just found that interesting. But he's even more famous because of his, con- his conviction and his denunciation against the, mytholo- the mythological worldview of his time he saw through it all. I mean, he just saw through the smoke. He's like, guys, these quote-unquote gods are just men creating things in their own image. So he famously said, quote, if cows and horses or lions had hands and could draw, then horses would draw the forms of gods and like horses, cows like cows, making their bodies similar in, in shape to their own. So he knew this is fake. Now, one would think that this guy, Xenophanes was an atheist, in fact, a lot of atheists, and I've heard in, in debates, use his quote to try to um, delegitimize the Bible. Well, we would be wrong if we thought that, because Xenophanes, in spite of living in a polytheistic culture, he didn't make the mistake that a lot of people make today. That is, they confuse God with the gods, so they reject the former with the latter. So they they confuse God, G O D, right, capital G O D, with quote unquote the gods and they reject God for the gods, because he believed in one God who ruled the universe. He said this, quote, there is one God similar to mortals, neither in shape nor in thought, remote and effortless. He governs all there is, end quote. So here then is a thinker with a scientific bent of mind who believed in God. Wow. That might be news to you as it was news to me. And I I personally, I just, I can't get over the fact that before Moses, before, sorry, before this guy, was someone like Moses who already called out the mythologies, dude. He already called out the fairy tales. He weren't against worshiping other gods and bowing down to them, to the sun, to the moon, or to the stars, even the prophet Jeremiah, for example, writing in 600 BC. He's like, dude, it's absurd to deify nature in worshiping it. Like, no, the atheists weren't the first ones to de-deify the universe. It was actually the theists, the theists who said, this is nonsense. No, nature is not a god, okay? There's one god because, as I've explained before, and we will see, it's logically necessary for god to exist, and there's evidence of that. But as you can tell... The Christian faith, and I say the Christian faith because it's rooted in Jewish scriptures, has a long track record of calling out the nonsense and fairy tales and mythology. So to place the Christian faith in the mythology section when it's Christian faith that calls out mythologies in the the first place, yes, that just ain't going to work, bro. Well, back to seeing the fames. So during his time, there were two... Patterns, if you will, two trajectories in Greek thinking from that time. There was one like Xenophanes, which we just talked about, in the Hebrews, which held that there was a divine designer who transcended the in the material world. And then there are some like Thales, for example, that was um, was atheistic and materialistic. Well, fast forward like a bunch of years to the 13th century AD. So we were like in you know, 500 BC. Well, now we're in 13th century AD when Thomas Aquinas comes into the picture. Now Thomas Aquinas, he began to for- formalize even more the theological thinking of God's relationship to to creation. It had already been done by a lot of brilliant minds in the Christian world, but he became to formalize it even more. He talked about the reality of God being the unmoved mover, in God who through direct causation created uh, the world and upholds everything through indirect causation. Well, Let's. I'm going to take a pause and so we're going to kind of come back here. But may, maybe you're familiar with what I'm kind of sharing right now. You're like, oh, dude, I totally know Thomas Aquinas. But when I for, first began to read about all of this, like many years ago and even more recently, it, it was news to me. I, I, I didn't know that you could reasonably defend the Christian faith. I didn't know that they were brilliant men of science, as we'll talk about even more, that believed in God and were devout Christians. I mean, I still remember being 15 years old, sitting in the apologetics camp without knowing what apologetics even meant. I was like, why are we apologizing for being Christians, right? I was like, that doesn't make any sense. But then I was flabbergasted, to put it dramatically, that you could reasonably defend your faith. And I was just shocked, of learning the rich history of intellectual men and women of faith that gave me confidence, and hopefully it can give you confidence that you're not crazy. And as we're no, already noticing, the statement that believing in God is for like idiots is more about sounding like provocative than actually having any any substance. But anyways, back to his history class, we were talking about um, my man in the medieval times. So if you remember, it says Thomas Aquinas. We're gonna put a pause and come back to him, just kind of reference him briefly. But we have to understand that the scientific revolution is a period of time dated from like the 16th to the 18th century. So let's just say the 1500s to the 1700s. Well, the eminent historian of science, Sir Alfred North Whitehead, he observed that medieval Europe, which by the way, that was um, Thomas Aquinas, in 1500 knew less than Archimedes in the 3rd century BC. So 3rd century BC, 1500 BC, in terms of scientific... Knowledge, not much different, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yet by 1700, so 200 years later, Newton wrote his masterpiece of Principia Mathematica. How does this even happen? I mean, Whitehead, he asked the, the question, um, How does what can account for such an explosion of knowledge that happens in such a relatively short amount of time? Well, th- here's his answer. He says, quote, modern science must come from medieval insistence, and that was Thomas Aquinas, by the way, on the rationality of God. My explanation, he says, is that faith is in the possibility of science generated antecedently to the development of modern scientific theory. It is an unconscious deriv- derivative from medieval theology. So C.S. Lewis kind of echoes this in a more simpler terms. He says men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in in a legislator. Oof, I know that was deep. So, as an example, this was the very conviction of Francis Bacon, the inventor of bacon. Can we all thank him? My gosh, dude, thank you so much, because bacon is, sorry, bacon is just so amazing. Applewood smoked bacon on the grill. Wow, it's amazing. And no, fun fact, he did not, invent in fact, uh invent bacon. That was just, that was just because his last name is Bacon. Anyways, he is a famous scientist regarded by many as the father of modern science. And he said this, that God provided us with two books, the book of nature and the Bible, in that to be really educated, one should give one's mind to studying both. Wait a second. You're telling me that Francis Bacon, one of the fathers of modern science, was an Anglican, a devout Christian? I I thought Christians were dumb, dude. Nope. Think again, here are some of the names that you might recognize, but didn't know that they're actually believers in God, many of them, all of them theists, and many of them devout Christians. Galileo, for example, which we will briefly talk about a little bit later. How about Johannes Kepler, a German mathematician? You might recognize his name because he was an astronomer as well that discovered that the Earth and planets travel about the sun in, the, in elliptical orbits. And he gave, actually, these fundamental laws of planetary motion. He also did some important work on optics and geometry. What about Blaise Pascal? He laid the foundation for modern theory of probabilities. He formulated what came to be known as Pascal's principle of pressure. What about Robert Boyle? As the person who discovered the volume of gas, that the volume of gas decreases with the increasing pressure and vice versa, thus the famous Boyle's law. Yeah, he was a Christian. What? No way. Mind blown. That was like that emoji. I know. And we haven't even stopped, bro. Michael Faraday, he was a British physicist and chemist who's best known for his discoveries in electromagnetic induction, as well as laws and like electrolysis and a bunch of other terms I personally don't understand. But hey, if you're a nerd and you about that stuff, you know that there was a Christian involved from it from the get go, bro. His biggest breakthrough actually in electricity came when he invented the electric motor. What about English mathematician Charles Babash? Babosh, Babosh, sorry, that's just a funny last name. He calculated the end that, or he made calculating engines that are among the most celebrated icons in the prehistory of computing. I mean, this guy lived in the um, 19th century, mostly 1791 to 1871. His difference engine number one was the first successful automatic calculator and remains one of the finest examples of precision engineers of the time. The biologist Gregor Mendel who either you can thank or hate for your class in biology, he's the one who discovered the fundamental laws of inheritance. He deduced that genes come in pairs and are inherited as distinct units, one from each parent. Mendel tracked the segregation of parental genes and their appearance and the the offspring as dominant or recessive traits. So if you spent and pulled out your hair trying to figure out if one parent has blue eyes and one parent has brown eyes, and what does the kid have? You can thank or you can hate. Gregor Mendel (laughs) was also like I said, someone who believed in God. What about the French chemist Louis Pasteur? Louis Pasteur demonstrated that the microorganisms cause disease and discovered how to make vaccines from a weakened microbes. He developed the earliest vaccines against cholera triggs and rabies. Wow. I don't know why I said that in my fake French accent, but yes. What about the British mathematician, William Thompson, known as Lord Kelvin? You might recognize that last name because he was one of the most eminent scientists of the 19th century and is best known for today for inventing the international system of absolute temperature that bears his name. Kelvin. I know. What about, lastly, the Scottish mathematician, James Clerk Maxwell? He's best known for formulating the theory of electromagnetism. Excuse me, such smart words. I need my I need my fake glasses. I wore my polo for this moment because I wanted to feel smart, but apparently I needed like some glasses as well. And making the connections between light and electromagnetic waves. Obviously, a bunch of idiots. Gosh, these guys are like not smart at all because they believed in the God. Anyways, let's go with smarter people who don't. Yeah, if you can't see my my expression right now, I'm like, hey, bro. These guys were geniuses and they believed in God. Now, one point of clarification is I'm not claiming that every aspect of religion in Christianity in particular has contributed to the rise of science because there's some stuff that's just strictly theological. What I am suggesting is that the rise of science came because of a biblical doctrine of unique of a unique creator God who's responsible for the existence of and order in the universe. That has played an important role in the history of science. And and I get it, you, you might say, you know what? Um, I knew all of that, but there's still been a lot of a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance from from religious. Like, are you trying to say, Andrew, that there hasn't ever been any resistance from a, a religious group against uh the rise of science? No, there definitely has been. There's there's been resistance to scientific advancement by religious men and women. It was actually a Scottish theologian, um T.F. Uh, Torrance sorry, T.F. Torrents in his book Theological Science, that he points out that science was often quote seriously hindered by the Christian Church, even when it w- when within it the beginnings of modern ideas were taking their rise. End quote. Nevertheless, he writes quote in spite of the unfortunate tension that has so often cropped up between the advance of th- scientific theories and traditional habits of thought in the Church. Theology can still claim to have mothered throughout long centuries the basic beliefs and impulses which gave rise specifically, especially to modern empirical science. If only through the unflagging faith in the reliability of God the creator and ultimately the intelligibility of creation itself. See, now... I just want to take, before we wrap up, wrap up this episode, to just talk about the infamous story of Galileo. Because I know a lot of people that go, well, 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 what about Galileo, though? Because wasn't he tortured by the church? Wasn't he suffered under the Inquisition because he spoke against the church and against the, he he spoke truth to power? Okay, well, let's touch on it briefly here. Why I say briefly, it's like really briefly. Um, but uh, let, let me quote history professor Peter Harrison in his, like, amazing work called The Territories of Science and Religion. This is going to kind of help us frame our conversation about Galileo. This is what he says, quote, he says, to cite this as an instance of science and religion conflict is to misconstrue the context. For a start, the Catholic Church endorsed the scientific consensus of the period, which on the basis of the available evidence held that the earth was stationary in the middle of the cosmos, to this extent, it might be better to characterize this episode as a conflict within science rather than between science and religion. Second, the first use of Galileo's affair for propaganda purposes was actually by Protestants seeking to discredit Catholics so that it was initially given a role in conflicts within religion. End quote. We have to understand Galileo was not an atheist. He was not like, oh, I hate the church and the church is stopping me from doing my work. No, he was not an atheist. In fact, he was a firm believer in God and the Bible and remained Catholic until until the end of his life, even with his quarrels and troubles with the Roman Catholic Church. The main problem wasn't actually religious in nature. It was religious politics, which, by the way, all of us can attest in the last few years how we've all seen politics in general get in the way of a lot of scientific research, haven't we? Sorry, I don't want to get canceled. Anyways, uh, let's move on. You see, there are a lot of myths concerning this man, and it will be just helpful to dispel some as we just start wrapping up the the episode. Arthur Coesler, he refers to some of these in in his book called The Sleepwalkers. He says, quote, Contrary to to statements and even recent outlines in in science, Galileo did not invent the telescope, nor the microscope, nor the thermometer, nor the pendulum clock. He did not throw a waste from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and he did not prove the truth of the Copernicum system. He was not tortured by the Inquisition, did not languish in its dungeons, and did not say, e por si move, but it moves. He was not a martyr of science. What he did was to found the modern science of dynamics. And he continues, end quote. So what actually happened with, with Galileo then? Well, to start, Scalio enjoyed a great deal of support from religious intellectuals, like from the astronomers of the powerful Jesuit educational system, the Colegio Romano, all these guys at first endorsed his astronomical work. But here's when things start kind of going a little bit south, because history is complicated. In the year of 1614 in December, there was a man called Tommaso Caccini, who denounced, because this is Italian, right? He denounced in the Chorza Santa Maria, novella in Florence, Copernacanism. No, I I don't know how to say that in Italian. Uh, Copernacanism in Galileo and all mathematicians, he denounced them, all of that. And it was because of a combination of Galileo's own lack of diplomacy, his very kind of almost fiery character, if you will, how he irritated the elites of his day by giving intellectual empowerment to the ordinary people because he published in Italian, not just Latin, because of the Protestant Reformation going on that was challenging the authority of Rome, making Rome, uh, the the Roman church, even more insecure about its religious power and believing that religious security was under increasing threat. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church dragged its feet for centuries to, until it finally re-accepted or rehabilitated him, making this, this just made it a tremendous story. But the, the lesson of Galileo's life isn't that faith in the Bible stopped scientific inquiry as many times as you. It, it, it isn't that faith is against scientific inquiry. No, the lesson, there's many lessons, but of one of them is that, hey, church politics happens, unfortunately. It really does. And one must remember to differentiate between what the Bible actually says versus people's interpretations, because people would use, at that time, believe, no, 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 you see, the earth is stationary and the sun physically rises because the Bible says the sun rises. But we can understand that it says it poetically, or there's a fancier term, which I don't know for that. Basically, it describes it not in an objectively as in, It forces you to to attach yourself to a certain uh, planetary motion theory versus it just says it as as an observation because for you, for the author, it looks like it's rising. And we say this every day. Even scientists say, hey, when the sun rises, when the sun sets, does the sun actually rise? Does it really set? No, it doesn't. Because here's the main thing. The real battle is not faith versus reason or science. In fact, the main battle is that of worldviews, not data, in fact. One worldview that believes nothing created everything, that chaos evolved into order, that life came from non-life, that intelligence came from non-intelligence, in those who believe that everything that comes to existence has to have a cause— That the universe came to existence, thus the universe has a cause, and life has a cause. And this cause cannot be itself, it can't be nothing. It has to be something that's more powerful, that's immaterial, that's timeless, that's spaceless, that's all knowing, etc. AKA God. So, this is where we arrive at the irony of it all. It's in fact atheism that's anti science. I know Skeleto would die at this moment. Why? Because if atheism is true, we have no reason to trust our own cognitive abilities or scientific observation because science relies on objectivity, facts, and truth. Yet, if our minds truly develop out of the need to survive according to Darwinian evolution, mind, our mind's goal is not to seek out truth but to survive. So, how can we trust our brains to be telling us the truth and not just to tell us something that to help us survive? If atheism was true, well, There would, in fact, be no order in in nature, and thus, it would be unintelligible. And I would argue we would even be here if atheism is true, because there needs to be a God for creation, and that's a longer episode. Go check it out. We did talk about seven reasons why we're not here by chance. But what's funny is, like, think about Kirk uh, Kirstenstein. He was the founder of Legos. Atheists are like kids playing with Legos, but denying that Kirstenstein ever existed, or denying that anyone created Legos. It's like, what? Are you serious? Like we're playing with creation, but denying that the existence of a creator is truly remarkable. So if, if you're someone today that you have a more scientific bend, dude, God made you that way. Like that doesn't mean, oh, I guess I can't be a Christian. What are you talking about? God is not afraid of the reason that he gave you. Use it. God has so much for you to discover. Just don't let bitterness and, and hurt and pride get in the way because then that's we start drawing wrong conclusions from the data. But don't believe the lie that Christians can't be intellectual people. I mean, Jesus himself said it. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven. 37. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Did you catch that? With all your mind. Share this episode with a friend, and we'll see you in the next episode of The Andrew Amashow.